The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 43, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 19 this morning. The word of the Lord. But now, says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, cushion Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. 
We'll be reading through verse 17 this morning, the word of our God. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on any old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Please keep your place here in Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. The Mosaic Covenant is characterized by feasting and not by fasting. In fact, the only time in the Torah that fasting is ever commanded in ancient Israel is on the one day of atonement. By contrast, the Lord gives numerous days for feasting. Now that just makes good sense. I mean, we feast to celebrate good news. We feast to celebrate great blessings. And the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has powerfully delivered his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I mean, if you're not going to celebrate that, what in the world are you going to celebrate? And so the Lord institutes a week-long feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that climaxes in the Passover celebration. But see, the Lord is not only committed to delivering his people, he's also committed to caring for us. And so the Lord also institutes uh, harvest festivals and pilgrimage festivals. Uh, in the spring, that climaxes at Pentecost. And in the fall, there's another week-long festival of feasting that is known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. Turns out that Almighty God likes to throw a party for his people. Furthermore, since the Lord is our provider, he doesn't want you running on a treadmill like you're a rat, uh, thinking you always have to run harder and harder and faster and faster and longer and longer in order to get blessings. As though in order to receive blessings in your life, you have to do it. So the Lord institutes a weekly Sabbath. Every single week, he says, come aside, rest, stop fretting, stop working, trust me, I am your provider. I am the God who loves you. Come aside and celebrate who I am and what I am doing for you and find your rest in me. At the heart of all this celebration is that the Lord our God has chosen to identify with us and he has chosen to make his home with us. The beautiful promise that you hear all throughout scripture, I will be your God and you shall be my people, ought to bring joy to all of your hearts and to the hearts of every believing person. Under the Mosaic Covenant, the Lord also set his name and his presence among his people, first in the tabernacle and later in the temple. 
with God being with us and God being for us and dwelling in our midst, it is natural that biblical religion would be characterized far more by feasting than it would ever be characterized by fasting. Quite simply, the Lord is good to those who fear him. What then are we to do with fasting? I mean, that's the issue that comes up in today's passage. In light of the fact that biblical religion is primarily about feasting, what are we to make of the practice of fasting? I mentioned the connection between fasting and mourning, but there are really two times when fasting becomes appropriate for the people of God. The first is, in fact, with mourning. Mourning over our sin, mourning over the calamities that God brings upon us, both individually and as a nation, or now in the New Covenant as a church, because of our sinful rebellion and neglect of him. And at such times, it's appropriate to express that mourning with mourning and fasting and prayer. It's actually part of repenting when we do that. Uh, What we're saying is, is not only am I sorry, but I am turning back to the Lord, seeking him as my faithful savior, and therefore by his grace, seeking to walk in newness of life. That, in fact, is a type of fasting that you see throughout the Old Testament. But there is a second reason to fast, and that is simply to give up something that normally occupies a lot of your time. We often think of this in terms of um, giving up food. So you might give up breakfast in order to spend that time praying. right? That, That would be a biblical sort of fasting that can be quite helpful to us. But of course, you don't have to give up breakfast. The issue for you, the thing that is occupying your time and your thoughts, might be your cell phone or social media or television or something. And so you say, you know what? I got some issues in my life and I really need to draw closer to God. So this Friday and Saturday, I'm not going to look at social media at all. And every time I would, I'm going to take that time to focus upon the Lord in prayer. Uh, I'll say a bit more about that toward the end of our, this morning's sermon. Yet as we approach this portion of God's word, it is important to remind ourselves, because it's actually against our nature. I think by nature, we think that pious people fast, Right? But it's important to remind ourselves that biblical religion is primarily about feasting and not about fasting. For our God is a good and gracious God who delights to bless his people. We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, a faithful misunderstanding. Second, more than a messenger. Third, It's a new day, and fourth, a time for feasting. Let me give you those four points again, because it'll help you keep track of where we're going in this morning's sermon. First, a faithful misunderstanding. Second, more than a messenger. Third, it's a new day, and fourth, a time for feasting. We begin with a faithful misunderstanding. Uh, Look at verse 14 with me. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now if the Mosaic Covenant is primarily about feasting, not about fasting, 
uh, why are the disciples of John, why are the Pharisees so concerned about fasting? In fact, we're told elsewhere that the Pharisees made a practice of fasting twice a week. Were John's disciples and the Pharisees simply misunderstanding the Mosaic Covenant? Do you understand that question? Were the disciples of John and the Pharisees simply misunderstanding the Mosaic Covenant? And I want to encourage you, don't assume that that's the case. See, if we remember that there's a reason for fasting, when we're mourning over our sin, over a calamity that has come upon us, then we have to think through Israel's history. The most climatic um, disaster that befalls Israel in the Old Testament is the destruction in 586 B.C. of the temple in Jerusalem, and frankly, nearly all of Jerusalem with it, is the Babylonians, as instruments of God's chastising wrath against his people, bring his people out of the promised land and into captivity. Now, if you're in Babylon, it would be very natural for you, if you were a faithful Jew, a pious Jew, to mourn over that, to mourn over your sin that made God's leading his people in exile, a just thing for him to do. And so you would start to regularly fast and pray. You would be praying that the Lord would deliver you from Babylon, but frankly, you'd also be praying that the Lord would take Babylon out of his people. Right? You're you're praying for both. And so in Babylon, it becomes quite common, and later in Persia as well, for the pious to engage, not simply in fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement, but to engage in fasting and mourning and prayer as an ordinary part of their life. Um, Consider the opening words of Psalm 137. Psalm 137. The faithful remnant in Babylon laments like this. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. As we thought of Jerusalem, we put away our harps hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing for us one of those songs of Jerusalem, they said. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? That's pretty moving stuff. What I want you to realize this morning Psalm 137 was not on the playlist of all the Jews in Jerusalem. It was on the playlist of the faithful Jews, the pious Jews, those who recognized that God was entirely just in saying exile and longed for God to restore the people. But as you read about the Babylonian exile, you'll discover that the vast majority of people weren't doing that. They weren't singing Psalm 137. They were assimilating into the Babylonian and then the Persian culture. They were watering down the distinctives of them being the people of God so that their pagan neighbors would approve of them, or at the very least, that their pagan neighbors would leave them alone. You know, we see this in the book of Esther. Please don't read the book of Esther and think that Esther is a hero. Queen Esther, throughout most of the book, hides the fact that she's even a Jew. She's assimilating to the Persian culture, in order to enjoy the blessings of the Persian culture without suffering the persecution for standing clearly for the people of God. Well, if you have that image in mind, you'll realize that this practice of fasting distinguished them. The pious and faithful Jews, they fasted and mourned and prayed to God to restore the people, and those who didn't fast, 
were therefore marked out as being the worldly Jews. And that continues all the way down to the coming of Christ. Now, in some sense, we can get while they were fasting and mourning and praying in Babylon. The thing we can miss as Christians is that reason didn't go away when God brings a small remnant of Jews out of Persia, right, through the decree of, of Cyrus the king, when he returns them to the promised land, and yes, they eventually rebuild the temple. The reason for the mourning doesn't go away. Yes, it's true, it does take them some time, but eventually they do get around to finishing the temple. There's a little bit of joy and celebration with that. But unlike with the temple of Solomon, when Solomon dedicates the temple, God tangibly puts his presence there. The glory cloud descends into the temple and everyone's overwhelmed. That does not happen when they rebuild the second temple. The Lord does not return to Zion. There's a temple there. They can legitimately offer sacrifices, but you can still have the words Ichabod written above the doorposts. The glory has departed. Of course, that wasn't just with the temple. That was with their national life. The people were longing for the day when God would lift the nation up again. But they were under the boot of one pagan government after another. Right? Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now Rome. All the way down to the coming of Christ. That's why faithful Jews in Christ's day were still longing for the return of the Lord to Zion. Something, by the way, the Lord promises through the prophet Malachi. He's going to send the messenger before the Lord's face. John the Baptist, we know. And then the Lord himself is going to come. Since that hasn't happened yet, faithful and pious Jews continue to mourn and to fast and to pray, seeking the Lord. So I call the disciples of John the Baptist faithful. And when they come to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? We ought to see this as a faithful question. They don't understand. Now, John's disciples knew quite well that Jesus was a holy man of God. But you want to remember that John's disciples are also people who have publicly repented of their sins. Uh, they've heeded John's call, more accurately God's call through John, to be turned back to God. They understand that Jesus is a holy man of God. They're not questioning that. Um, the Pharisees sometimes do, right? Because he's feasting with these pagan sinners, these tax collectors. That's not the disciples of John's question. What they can't square is, why are you this holy man of God like John, our teacher, not teaching your disciples to long for the coming of kingdom and to mourn and fast seeking God to send the kingdom now? It was an honest question by people who simply didn't understand what Jesus was doing. But more fundamentally than that, they didn't truly understand who Jesus is. They were thinking of Jesus as being another prophet, just like John. You remember, John was an extraordinary prophet, profoundly influential throughout Israel. And even if they promoted Jesus a bit and thought he might be even a little bit greater than John, they were thinking of him on a continuum with John. But Jesus was more than a messenger. Jesus came to do more than announce the kingdom of God. Beloved, Jesus is the good news about God. Come in his own person. In Christ, the Lord has returned to Zion. 
You don't need to fast and plead with God to send the Lord back to Zion because Jesus Christ is the Lord who has returned to Zion. In Christ, the kingdom of God has already begun to be realized in this world. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, the form of the question posed to Jesus is extremely significant. Some of John's disciples grouped themselves together with the Pharisees in the pious practice of voluntary fasting. They wonder why Christ's disciples, as one more group within the context of first century Judaism, are not engaged in similar practices. Right? They're saying, we fast, the Pharisees fast, why don't your disciples fast? Right? Like all of us who are pious. That's what they're saying. They are assuming that there is, or should be, nothing distinctive about the disciples of Jesus. Jesus' followers should be practicing their religion in the same ways as the other groups. And by implication, the questioners are also convinced that there is nothing qualitatively different about Jesus himself. So Christ's answer challenges us. I mean, first it challenges them, but it challenges us as well. And it invites us to a new understanding of who Jesus is. Please look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15. Jesus says to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, at first blush, this image is obvious. Nobody decides to fast at a wedding reception. Right? That's not what wedding receptions are for. Wedding receptions are for celebrating, celebrating in part by feasting. On the other hand, this brief illustration has remarkable depth to it. The key for us is to answer two questions. First, who is the groom? And second, what does it mean when Jesus say, says, what does Jesus mean when he says, the groom will be taken away from them? In the Old Testament, Israel's groom is clearly identified as Yahweh. That's actually the, the most important thing to get this morning. So let me just say that again. In the Old Testament, Israel's groom is clearly identified as Yahweh. As the prophet Isaiah puts it, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. And naturally, this truth undergirds the entire book of Hosea. The whole point of Hosea is, is it's a picture of a faithful God marrying his people Israel only for his people to run off and commit spiritual adultery against him with the Lord committing to drawing them back, drawing them back. And at one point he declares he's going to divorce them. But he also declares that he's going to, after this divorce, draw his people back at some point in the future, we know that's in the New Covenant, from all the corners of the earth. Now the very fact that Israel's Idolatry in the Old Testament is regularly called adultery, makes clear that they fell from a very privileged position. Right? 
Pagans cannot commit adultery with God. They were never married to him. The sin of Israel is called adultery because of all things, the living God who created everything has chose to come into this intimate covenant relationship with his people where he would not only be our God, he would be our husband and the church would be his bride. After the alienation of the exile, the Lord comes to renew his intimate relationship with his people, and he comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, God is renewing his marital union with his bride. See, Jesus is in an entirely different, a qualitatively different role in the history of salvation than John the Baptist. Intriguingly, John had told his disciples this before he had been thrown into prison, but apparently the message had yet to sink in. Uh, Most of you will recall from the Gospel of John uh, that there was a time in John's ministry where his disciples become jealous of Jesus and his followers. They're jealous that their own teacher's star is no longer the leading star on the stage of redemptive history. Right, that Jesus is getting more and more attention, and in fact, that more people are going to him and being uh, baptized by our Lord's disciples. So they come to John and they say to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Do you remember how John responds? John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. See, John is telling his disciples, I'm not the groom. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Lord come in the flesh. I am the friend of the bridegroom, and my purpose is that you would be married to him. Jesus does not come like that. Jesus comes as the Lord himself, who is going to marry his people. They are in a qualitatively different position. And so if you think about the the whole question of fasting, um, we should realize that there's no reason for the disciples to fast while they're with the Lord. They are not apart from the Lord. They have nothing to mourn over in that sense. In fact, they have every reason to rejoice because they are with God himself who has come to rebuild this intimate relationship with them as his people. But what about that second question? The second question is, what does Jesus mean when he says, the groom will be taken away from them? What about that question? Well, I want you to notice that Jesus does not say that the groom will go away. He says that the groom will be taken away. That is, Jesus is not referring to his ascension into heaven. Actually, for the very first time in the gospel according to Matthew, he's referring to his own violent death. And Jesus says, you know, 
when, when me, because he's talking about himself, when the groom is taken away through his violent death, then my disciples will mourn. Then will be the time for fasting. Then will be the time for crying out to God for mercy. But not now while I'm with them. I will come back to that toward the end of the sermon. Now, if Jesus had stopped here, uh, he would have given us an entirely clear picture of who he is. Right? He is the Lord come in the flesh. He's not just another prophet. More than a messenger, as I say. But he would have left us with an inadequate understanding of what he had come to do. Why is that? If Jesus had just stopped here, we could imagine that his life on earth is simply an intrusion into history. We had this brief moment where we could rejoice with God being with us. And when he ascends back into heaven, now we have the absence of Christ. And we go back to the way things were before. At the very best... We go back to the way things were before with us being more faithful to our God. Right? We simply go back to old covenant religion. But that's not what Jesus came to do. After Jesus is taken away, we have to ask ourselves, will we simply go back to the way things were before with fasting and mourning as we wait for the Lord to return and to dwell in the midst of his people? Uh, I'm harping on this point because, oddly enough, there are quite a few Christians who think that way about our relationship to Christ in this present age. Christ was once on earth. Boy, we wish we could be back then. But now he's apart from us. We either wish we could go back or we wish we could go forward, but we live in the sorry state in between. So let us mourn and fast. Well, I'm going to say more about this toward the end of the sermon as well. Yet it should be obvious that our Lord's teaching is moving in an entirely different direction. See, John the Baptist is the one who's sent before the face of the Lord. Jesus is the Lord himself who has returned to Zion in his own person. And Jesus did not just come to make a surprise visit. He has come to make all things new. So Christ gives us two pithy word pictures to make clear that it is a new day, a new day for the kingdom of God. We have heard the faithful question of John's disciples, and we have grasped how Jesus is more than a messenger, that Jesus himself is the Lord who is returning to his people. Now Jesus is making clear that with his coming, he is beginning to make all things new. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. Jesus says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the new wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. You see, unlike the image of the wedding feast, which is positive about celebration, here Jesus is giving us images that are primarily negative. He's saying, if you try to take what I'm now doing, what I'm doing with building the kingdom of God, and stuff it back into the old ways, the old forms of piety, it's going to end up in a mess. Right? I mean, that's the whole point. 
You, you, you take a piece of cloth that comes right off the loom. That's what this language literally means. Fresh off the loom. hasn't been folded or anything. And you put it on a garment that's been regularly washed and has already shrunk. What's going to happen when you wash this garment with the patch on it is, is the patch is going to shrink. It's going to tear away. It's going to make things worse than they were before. See, Jesus is telling us that he did not come simply to clean up or to serve as a patch on Israel's religion. Jesus did not come so that his people would finally engage in old covenant religion in the way that they always should have. Right? The old was good. It was good in its place. But with the coming of Christ, redemptive history has turned on a hinge, and the world cannot be the same. Jesus is bringing about a reformation of his church and not merely a restoration. Jesus is ushering in the new covenant. There is, of course, continuity between the old and the new covenants, but the new covenant is greater with the Lord's presence and grace being displayed in even more expansive ways than ever before. Instead of priests being taken from the tribe of Levi, it is now true that every single one of you as the people of God have been turned into a kingdom of priests. That's astonishing. We ought not to take that for granted. Instead of God placing his special presence in a temple made out of stones that the people could take pilgrimages to go visit, God is making a new temple out of living stones. And he has dramatically filled this temple the first time at Pentecost, but he continues to fill that temple with himself every time someone comes to saving faith. And instead of the people of God being isolated to a small strip of land alongside the Mediterranean Sea, the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, gathering a vast multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and language to be united in Christ into the one family of God, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Beloved, if the old covenant was a time for feasting, how much more the new, right? Things have gotten even better than they were before. The old covenant forms were good. Even some of the intertestamental traditions were perfectly fine. But now that the Lord has returned to Zion, now that the king has begun to make all things new, trying to squeeze the kingdom of God back into those old forms and traditions is like trying to take New wine, but it hasn't even fermented yet because Jesus is just introducing the kingdom and putting it into an old goat skin that was used for wine, but it is now dried up and hardened. It is that new wine ferment is going to expand and that wine skin is going to break. Right? Now, of course, it would take the church uh, more than the apostolic age to figure this all out. But Jesus is already pointing ahead to saying, you know what? I don't want you to simply go back to the old forms. I am bringing about a new administration of the covenant of grace, and therefore you are going to need to approach me in somewhat different ways. You're going to need to relate to each other in somewhat different ways, and as you read the New Testament, you see that one of the great struggles is over this very issue. Do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to be Christians? And one of the new ways is the answer is no. In Christ there is neither slave nor free. In Christ, in terms of privilege, there is neither male nor female. 
In Christ there is neither Jew or Gentile, but all of you have been made daughters and sons of the living God. Now in the 21st century, we've actually grown pretty familiar with those wineskins. After all, the church has been going on for a while. But we actually still have a bit of a challenge for us in applying this passage that deals with fasting. If new covenant religion, perhaps even more of an old covenant religion, is primarily about feasting, is there still a place for fasting in the Christian life? That's a question we need to answer. I want to bring you back to this one line from Jesus in today's passage. Jesus says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, some Christians, actually a pretty good portion of American Christians, interpret this as, from the time of Jesus' ascension to the time of Christ's second coming, we ought to be mourning and fasting, praying for Christ to come again. And I want you to see from your Bibles that that can't possibly be what Jesus means. First of all, Jesus was referring to his violent death and not to his ascension. And our Lord tells us what this means, both in terms of our joy and in terms of our sorrow. For example, in John 16, Jesus tells his disciples about his imminent death in these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. When will the disciples be overwhelmed with sorrow? When Jesus is taken away from them through his violent death. When will they be filled with joy? When they see the resurrected Jesus again. See, you understand that their sorrow was going to be the most profound depths of sorrow. The one they had committed their lives to, the one was their only hope in life and death, had been brutally put to death on the cross. The period would be one of profound and deep sorrow, but it would also be rather short. This is not something that persists throughout the whole new covenant age. Jesus was speaking of the time between his death and when they would see him once again. Second, the reason for deep mourning and regular fasting from the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, right up until this morning's passage, is the sense that the Lord had not returned to dwell in the midst of his people. Yet the main point of this passage is that Jesus is the Lord who's returned to dwell with his people. Furthermore, Pentecost does not simply restore the Lord dwelling in the midst of his people to that of the days of Solomon. Right? The people that were fasting and mourning in Babylon, they would have rejoiced over that. They would have thrown feasts over that. But beloved, Pentecost is not about restoring us to the days of Solomon or whatever period you want to pick. 
This is a step forward. It's a step up. God's presence with his people is more intimate now than it was before Christ died. God himself not only dwells with you, he dwells in you if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. This means that the church should be marked out in the midst of this present age primarily through Christian celebration. Third, here's something you want to do not only on this issue, but in issues in general. You're reading through the Gospels and you come to a place and say, how does that apply to the church? Now, I can kind of see what that meant for Jesus in his own day. How does it apply to the church? Well, what you need to do is read the rest of the New Testament. Because the New Testament epistles apply what Jesus says to the church. So here's a fascinating thing. You go read all the New Testament epistles and you read the book of Revelation looking for instruction in the church about fasting. And there it isn't. Fasting is never mentioned in any of the epistles. So if you think that fasting is supposed to be this big issue that was common to the church, you got a problem. Because none of the churches are being told to do it. Right? It's a very practical matter. The closest we get is when the Apostle Paul, by way of concession, tells the Corinthians, you know, if you guys want to abstain from sexual relations between husbands and wives for a short period of time to focus on prayer, I'll concede that's okay. But don't do it for too long. And remember, that's not a command. That's a concession of the apostle. So we should not be characterized as a church by fasting. It just doesn't fit the New Testament pattern at all. However, that doesn't mean that fasting has totally gone away. Remember, I pointed out that one of the ways that, one of the reasons why we fast is we get so caught up in the busyness of life and our routines and we just keep going through them and we do the same thing day in, day out, day in, day out. We get a little free time, we turn the radio on, we pick up our cell phones, whatever it happens to be. And God has given us this, this practice of fasting for us to say, I'm going to intentionally set aside some of those things I ordinarily do so that I could pray in particular in a focused way right now. And uh, you could do that just as your regular habit. You could just decide, I'm going to do that this Thursday. But the more common reason that people do that is they have something big coming up. Should I take this job in California and move, right? Should I ask this woman to marry me? In fact, we see this pattern in the apostolic church. One of the most momentous decisions the early church makes, the step they knew that God was leading them toward, but they didn't know exactly how to do it, was sending out Paul and Barnabas to begin the missionary journeys, to spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire and to plant churches. And do you know the apostolic church before they do that? They worship the Lord with prayer and fasting. So you see, by, by the apostolic pattern, there's, there's a good reason to continue fasting, but it should not be the major note in the Christian life. Well, that brings us full circle. Back to the main point of this morning's passage. While there is a place for prayer and fasting in the Christian life, if the old covenant was to be characterized by feasting, how much more the new? See, Jesus Christ is more than God's messenger. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us and God for us. In his own person, the Lord has returned to Zion and he has ushered in the new covenant whereby he has bestowed upon us astonishing privileges and amazing promises. God himself is with us, and we are his people. Beloved, this calls for celebration. Or as the Apostle Paul has put it, 
Christ our Passover lamb has been offered up. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast. Amen.